Camp Ripley is a 53,000-acre civilian and military training facility operated by the Minnesota National Guard. Keeping it up and maintaining it is no trivial matter. But Josh Pennington, the base's environmental supervisor, is up to the task. He and his team were among winners of the 2023 Secretary of Defense Environmental Awards. To learn more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Pennington. Camp Ripley is a 53,000-acre training center, and it's comprised about 30,000 acres of forests and other what we call grasslands and training sites, everything from maneuver lanes to artillery firing points to larger range complexes. My team is made up of two components. One is the environmental conservation program, and the other is the integrated training area management program. So we have 11 personnel in total, and it's our responsibility is to manage the training lands in a sustainable way that do two things. One, facilitates military training and prevents the military from degrading the natural resources that we're entrusted with. And then also preventing natural resources from impeding on military training. So ensuring things like threatened and endangered species don't lead to regulatory constraints that would then impede the military's ability to use these sites for training. Yeah, what are the biggest risks from military training that are present to the land as far as, you know, threatening any species of animal or uh, other biological forces in work? Sure. So Camp Ripley is geographically located at the convergence of three ecological provinces. We have 18 miles of the Mississippi River and nine miles of the Crow Wing River. That confluence is uh, kind of an important place ecologically. So we've got a lot of biodiversity on site. And what we've been able to demonstrate is that the military training does not have a negative impact on many of these species that call it home. We have everything from larger mammals, such as gray wolves and black bears. We have healthy populations of both, down to federally endangered species, such as the northern long-eared bat. And then a lot of pollinators that we refer to as at-risk species that are petitioned to be a federally endangered species, such as uh, monarch and Blanding's turtles and rusty patch bumblebee and, and all these things. And so finding that delicate balance of being able to manage for these species and provide the military training is kind of where uh, we are really successful. Gotcha. And that provides a perfect lead in into my next question of what looks like success in your eyes and what does it look like when that balance is perfectly achieved? Is it just the military is able to do whatever they want and also just have zero effect on the wildland or is that just going too far and, you know, there's always going to be one side affecting the other? Well, there's always going to be some level of impact. And and I think where we find the most success is through our integration efforts and synchronizing our efforts with the conservation values of the landscape. So a perfect example of that is on our larger maneuver lanes where there is maneuver damage. You know, we're providing soldiers with the critical training they need so that when they're called upon for our nation's worst day, they've they've got the training and the confidence they need on the equipment that they're using. So in the event that they do have any kind of large land disturbance areas, we are kind of the housekeepers. We go back, we regrade the area, we reseed it, and we make it sustainable so that for the next units coming in, that land is of perfect training value. And we do that in a way that has a lot of ecological value. So we use all the native plants and all of our restoration efforts. We do a lot of our seed harvesting on site, which saves the government thousands of dollars by not having to go out and purchase seed for these locations. And it's also a good locally ecological sink for seeds so that the, uh, the plants are grown right here. And for the animals that you mentioned earlier, is there trap and release efforts going on or what other uh, ideas are there behind uh, making sure that those endangered species don't come into contact with any of the military training going on? 
Yeah, so we have a very proactive program here that's integrated with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Department of Natural Resources, and we do a lot of surveys. So all those surveys provide the critical data that we need to assess what habitats these species are using. We overlay that with all the military training, and then we find that common ground. And so we have cooperative agreements established with both of these agencies that helps us study these animals, especially species like the northern long-eared bat. And we set timing on certain training areas for usage. So when we know that the bat is roosting and has maternity roosts where they're giving birth to pups, they may be impacted by certain activities. And so we're able to buffer those activities without completely restricting military training, but just working together to find areas that they can train while these other areas are temporarily closed. You mentioned the DNR and other natural wildlife that you coordinate with. Um, Are there any other agencies that you do work with to maintain the area around the base? Absolutely. And and I think one of the reasons, if you notice that Camp Ripley was selected as the winner of both the Department of Defense and the Secretary of the Army Environmental Award for Natural Resource Conservation. Personally, I think one of the reasons for that is our level of integration and use of partnerships to facilitate common interests. It would take all day to sit here and list all the partnerships we have. Uh, we are one of 10 federally designated sentinel landscapes in the entire country. A sentinel landscape is a large landscape anchored by a military base that prioritizes the resources from the USDA and Department of Interior and the Department of Defense to essentially do just that, prioritize our resources into a common landscape to do the greater good. So we have partnerships with agencies such as NRCS, the National Association of Conservation Districts, our Soil and Water Conservation Districts, our Board of Water and Soil Resources. A lot of great work that's going on both within the fence of Camp Ripley, but also outside the fence. One example of work outside the fence is the Natural Resource Conservation Service, the NRCS. They wanted to do more forest stewardship activities within the sentinel landscape around Camp Ripley. And and a lot of this is like writing burn plans for prescribed fire to do wildfire mitigation efforts. But they didn't have a location to staff a full-time forester. So Camp Ripley was able to partner with this organization. They provide the staff member. We provide the office and supervisory support. And so we host a private land forester on the installation, and he doesn't do any work on the installation. He's housed out of here, but all of his work is with private landowners surrounding Camp Ripley. Got it. We're speaking with Joshua Pennington, Environmental Supervisor for Camp Ripley in Minnesota. And I know you have a lot to worry about with your own 53,000 acres, but I am curious, where does Camp Ripley stand in comparison to other bases? Are there any other bases that are this biodiverse and have this kind of, I, I imagine there are larger ones, but has this sort of land that has to be maintained like this? You know, absolutely. And we're we're pretty humbled to be receiving the recognition at the DOD level because there are a lot of installations out there across all services that are doing incredible work in the uh, conservation natural resource field. And this across the country, Air Force, Army, National Guard, Marines, they all have different installations with natural resource personnel, with partnerships, and, and they're all doing wonderful things. Is there any bragging going on between you and your uh, counterparts at other bases? or? <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what keeps it fun. Right. But we also learn from each other a lot, too. And so I'll travel to colleagues that work at other installations in Florida, for example. And while Florida and Minnesota have a lot of differences, there are areas where we can learn from them and and adopt a lot of their practices. And so we've done that uh, to different scales. And and yeah, there's always always a lot to be learned. There's conferences throughout the year where we are able to get together with our colleagues from other installations and other services and, and learn from one another. 
and, and you know we've we've actually obtained federal agency partners based off work from other installations that they kind of did the groundwork for gotcha anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important for the conversation I just think that it's probably not well understood the amount of uh, conservation work that goes on across military installations. Uh, The Department of Defense manages 25 million acres across the country and um, everything from climate resiliency projects to uh, threatened and endangered species conservation. There's a lot of really great work going on. Josh Pennington, environmental supervisor at Camp Ripley in Little Falls, Minnesota, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost 
incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.